Well, hello everyone, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Andy Carluccio, and I'm the technical director here at the Global Inquirer, an undergraduate research podcast that explores case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. Our host, Nico, and the rest of our researchers are off for spring break, so you're stuck with me this week. But don't worry, I think we've got a really interesting podcast in store for you today. So as some of you may know, the United States intelligence community publishes a report on global trends every few years with the introduction of a new administration. And as you can imagine, the new 2035 report is really interesting and relevant to all of us here at the Global Inquirer. In this mid-season review episode, we're going to relate the content of our past five episodes to the trends outlined in the 2035 report to illustrate the points that the IC is making uh, with our own analysis and our own case studies. I think this will be a very interesting way to familiarize you with our work so far this semester if you've missed any of our podcasts while also offering our regular listeners with uh, new perspectives on the issues that we've explored thus far. And if you're interested in learning more about any of the topics or trends we discussed today, you can feel free to check out our associated podcast episodes to get the full context of the sound bites we're going to play today. And with all that said, uh, we're going to begin with the discussion of global economic shifts and the roles of certain countries as regional powers. To quote the 2035 report, uh, gray zone aggression and diverse forms of disruption will stay below the threshold of hot war but bring profound risks of miscalculation. Overconfidence that material strength can manage escalation will increase the risks of interstate conflict to levels not seen since the Cold War. In our third episode of this season, we explored how China is building new trade infrastructure in ex-Soviet republics, uh, keeping in mind this theme of economic movement uh, by regional powers. I, I want to turn it over to Derek and Liam as they discussed um, the One Belt, One Road initiative and the Corgos Gateway. So if you look at the present day, or at least in the last five years, we come to 2013 when President Xi Jinping visited Kazakhstan, announcing the One Belt, One Road initiative and attaining tremendous uh, enthusiastic support from Kazakhs yeah. uh, regarding the initiative, especially President Nazarbayev. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Corgos Gateway is so absolutely crucial to this whole project, because that is the first step in making this entire One Belt, One Road initiative work. The Corgos Gateway is the key connecting factor between the Chinese manufacturing economy and the European markets. For Chinese manufacturers to ship their goods to the European markets, you know, it could take anywhere from you know, 40 to 45 days to ship it by sea. And shipping it by air is prohibitively expensive. But shipping it by rail cuts the time in nearly half. And that's absolutely crucial for people like electronics manufacturers and uh, manufacturers of certain goods that need to get their products to market quickly. So economically, with this uh, massive investment in Kazakhstan, and especially in the Korgos Gateway, that proves to be uh, the one of the defining projects of the whole One Belt, One Road initiative. I think some of the big takeaways are how dynamic this region is, how quickly everything is changing in this region. Uh, we look at the Corgos Gateway as an example of the massive economic development that is happening in these Central Asian countries, the way they're looking to exploit their natural resources, the way they're positioning themselves as central shipping lanes between major economies. But also, this is sort of a case study in how um, the great powers of Russia, China, and the U.S. are also jockeying for influence among the Central Asian republics. Pivoting back to the 2035 report, I wanted to highlight a relevant section that predicts that China will attempt to shift to a consumer-driven economy from its longstanding export and investment focus. In light of what we just discussed, I think it's worth noting that the trade network discussed in Episode 3 also works in the reverse direction, allowing China to participate more readily in Western economies as predicted by this report. 
Uh, it's interesting to relate uh, this to the recent controversy between Chinese smartphone manufacturer Huawei and uh, the United States, which has allegedly barred certain mobile providers in the U.S. from selling new Huawei devices on their network for fear that these phones can be used by the Chinese to infiltrate the 5G infrastructure currently being developed by these providers in the United States. So if China is indeed attempting to participate in a consumer-driven economy, it'll be interesting to evaluate the risks posed to other markets. And, and moving on in this report, I think there are a few interesting connections to make between the trends of increased difficulty in governing and ideas and identities driving a wave of exclusion. In our first episode of the season, researcher Nick Mortensen explored the subject of cultural protectionism, which he found to be closely associated with both of these global trends. Here's a cut from that section of the podcast. In the mainstream, there's assumption that cultural protectionist policies are going to be moral, legal evils. There's a tendency to hyper-focus on Iran, China, North Korea, and other real authoritarian states, and kind of look at the extreme spectrum what these policies do. The restriction of speech, the restriction of the free spread of ideas, and the restriction of communication in the internet. However, most countries on Earth have these protectionist policies on a much smaller spectrum. They're there to protect domestic producers of cultural products, be it art, film, music, or television, and stop these products from being bullied or sort of shoved out by larger cultural exporters. Our fifth episode, which covered forced disappearances in Mexico, also has a strong connection to this global trend because of difficulties in governance related to lack of accountability due to the war on drugs and associated de facto governments in Mexico. Here's a clip from episode five. As we said earlier, this is not an isolated incident and that it's reflective of a, of a broader problem within Mexico. There's a lack of accountability for security forces. At the same time, there's a focus on combating the cartels through the military. And this has come at the expense of civilian institutions, which provide a level of accountability and protect against such abuses. And at the same time, you have a complete lack of clarity in what the government's strategy is. Because on the one hand, you have massive collusion between municipal and local police, and in some cases federal with the cartels. You also have, you know, brutal operations directed at the cartels that result in collateral damage or human rights abuses. And so what needs to happen is there needs to be a comprehensive strategy to deal with the cartel violence and to at the same time ensure that there's accountability and to delegate more of the responsibility and the power to the civilian institutions such as the courts and the police. 2035 report uh, also has a section on islands, orbits, and communities. And in the orbits section, which examines spheres of influence, uh, is also well illustrated by cultural protectionism as explored in this soundbite from episode one. This debate is quite interesting, I think, uh, in particular now with regard to the role of algorithms uh, in the use of uh, new media. Um, well, the argument there is we know it quite well from um, American scholars like Carl Sunstein and others is that the argument is that we live in a sort of a bubble, uh, in a sort of an echo chamber that has been driven by our previous industries or our um, behavior on social networking websites and this reinforces a certain pattern of media consumption that is not necessarily culturally or politically uh, diverse uh, but is very much actually um, limited and not open to uh, other voices, to other uh, debates, and ultimately leads to sort of poor um, public opinion decisions, to poor choices in voting, uh, and also ultimately to poor um, cultural uh, consumption. 
Netflix, Google, YouTube, all these services are predicated on algorithms. There are automatic programs that curate and select what they think you want to see next based off what you're already viewing. And as Dr. Burry mentions, these are very self-reinforcing. They create echo chambers. If I'm going to watch one particular type of video, it's going to keep on feeding me that until the day I die, more or less. And the issue is that that doesn't make it very easy for new cultural products to be introduced. These algorithms are self-reinforcing. They're self-reinforcing of reviewing habits. And as many policy regulators are, are now seeing, that makes it much harder for certain cultural products to sort of break the ice, to kind of break through that mold and break through that algorithm. Remaining on the subject of orbits, I want to return to our third episode of this season, this time discussing the role of Kazakhstan as a linking agent between Asia and Europe. Here's Liam Kraft. Well, specifically for Kazakhstan, it has essentially pursued what observers have called the multi-vector foreign policy. It sees itself as becoming an important country in the region as far as building the connectivity of the region, establishing Central Asia as not an imperial backwater of the Soviet Union or Russia, that is, uh, but rather establishing it as an important link between Asia and Europe, and it sees itself as playing a vital role in this. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the 1990s, President Nazarbayev, he actually had the original vision for uh, reinvigorating the the Silk Road, uh, the ancient trade routes between Asia and Europe by way of Kazakhstan. He also had the idea for a economic union, I emphasize economic union, um, in Central Asia with these five stands um, as a way of, of boosting trade internally as well. So Kazakhstan, from its beginning as a country in the early 90s, has been very committed to uh, this trade connectivity mm-hmm. uh, and economic connectivity in the region um, and across regions. Another trend mentioned in the 2035 report is that technology is accelerating progress but causing discontinuities. And I want to focus on the positive side of this observation related to our interview with Sahat Kahani in our second episode of this season, where Nico and Katya discussed how the internet is redefining the role of female doctors in Pakistan. And I'm a nurse and I might have a patient who comes to my place, which we can assume that it's going to be a clinic. And I, I as a nurse, will interview the patient for the basic demographics, the age, the history and all of that. And I'll type it in the software and I'll press enter and you being the doctor can actually see that history. And then I'll move the laptop towards the patient and the patient can interact directly with you. You can then ask additional questions and um, add on to the history and then you will be prescribing. And uh, the prescription actually comes at my end, that is the nurse's end, and I just print it and give it to the patient so that, you know, the nurse doesn't really have to type the prescription. That's how it works. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And so what are the responses from some of the employees, you know, coming from the patients or even the doctors that, are, that you employ? What have been some of the positive responses that you've been hearing? So, um, you know, when we started... It has been a very interesting journey and, you know, um, telemedicine has been very new in Pakistan. I'm sure uh, telemedicine is still heard of in countries like US, UK, Canada, but for Pakistan it was very new. So three years back when we started, um, initially people had reservations, patients were a bit apprehensive and they had the concerns that 
oh are they filming us or are they making our video or what because this you're talking about very low income communities where even the literacy level is not to that mark mm-hmm. so uh but then we started uh, doing one thing what we started to do was we started educating the community for telemedicine even before launching so what we used to do was for example go in a community sit on the floor with a group of women 8 to 10 women and you know give them a demo of how telemedicine works and that's how they started to become very comfortable with it then when the, when we started recruiting doctors most of these doctors we got from qualified institutes for example agha khan zaiuddin and some of them are even doctors who are based outside pakistan so that's when i think it really started to make a difference and the patients started to realize that this is some very sophisticated or elite service that they are actually having mm-hmm. so patients really started to just love it they were like oh wow you know i'm sitting in this community and i'm having access with a doctor who is essentially a graduate of one of the leading medical institutes of pakistan so that's how it started to change This episode also lends itself to a discussion of the trends of health issues demanding increased attention from the global community as explored in this section of the podcast. Usually many doctors graduate but because of this reason once they get married and once they have the domestic responsibilities they are unable to work. But then there's a the other set of women doctors as well who are very ambitious and who want to work but because of um, other social barriers for example in Pakistan there's hi- hardly any daycare facility for children. so once they get married and they have children they tend to fall out of the workforce for almost 6 to 8 years till their children grow up so this is a major gap that actually occurs um if you look at the numbers pakistan has almost 60000 to 70000 graduated female physicians yet because of the um reservations only 23% of this number are actually registered as physicians so you can imagine that that's a very small number for a country which has a population of almost 2 or 3 million people mm-hmm. yeah because on the other hand what happens is that because of the lack of the supply chain of doctors we still have a large population who does not have access to basic quality healthcare so the statistics say that 51% of the pakistani population still lacks access to quality healthcare and this is i think uh, the gray area where sehat kahani started working Before setting aside episode 2, I want to take one last look from the perspective of the following questions raised in the 2035 report. Quote, to what extent will governments, groups and individuals prepare for multifaceted global issues like climate change and transformative technologies? Let's take a look at one potential answer to that question from our podcast. So what we do is that we recruit these home-based female physicians and we connect them to healthcare um, populations in need through three various verticals. So the first vertical is about uh, creating e-health hubs. It's all about creating accessibility. So we go into marginalized communities, rural areas, um, where there is no female physician. And what we do is that um, we identify a two-roomed space. So we don't build, believe in building this infrastructure, but what we do is that we identify existing infrastructure present there. It can be a clinic um, built by some other organization. or a clinic currently being run by a nurse or a certified midwife then what we do is that we identify a respectable and reputable nurse or a midwife who certified and trained from the community <clears throat> and we bring her on board to become our partner 
and we convert that clinic into a telemedicine center by grading it, by adding telemedicine tools, um, basic telemedicine and internet connectivity. We train the nurse for medical protocols, for pharmacy protocols, for the telemedicine software, and every clinic is provided with two female physicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the whole business model, uh, so the whole company is essentially running on a business model where all of the services are charged and it's supposed to become a sustainable business model. Finally, I want to step back from the 2035 report and look at an episode that carved out a really special place in our season so far, episode four. Researcher Tyler Hinkle and host Nico Mars has traveled down to meet with the Rappahannock Native American tribe to discuss their recent federal recognition. The segment I'm going to play for you now is a statement from one of the council members regarding their hijacked history of, the, of her tribe, and it, and it really sticks with me because it reminds me of Global Inquirer's mission to shed light on these types of stories and individuals. Take a listen. Uh, I've been told by various people when they're looking at our history from a different writer, it's slanted. And they, say, and they ask me, why is it slanted? Well, it's because of who they are and how they view Native Americans. And they could be seeing the truth right there, but they're not going to tell you the truth because maybe it won't make a good book to be selling or something like that. Um, so it, it does make a difference. And with the fundings that we may be able to do, like Chief Ann said, that the truth will finally come out. They'll hear our version of how our people lived and how we encountered the colonists and how we deal with people today uh, on uh, in relationships to one another. So it's, it won't be just one side, you know, it'll have both perspectives for everybody to really understand and to really understand us as a group of people that have been in this country for decades and decades and decades. And, you know, we're just kind of, cast aside just because of progress that England wanted to do. And it didn't matter whether they thought we were human beings or not, you know, and we are, and we have a story to tell. And I think the generations that are coming up, not only in our own tribe, but just society in general, uh, I think they need to know what, what really is going on. And, um, and how to deal with situations because we're here and we're not going away and we need to learn as much as possible you know, from one another. And I think that would make a better relationship. And with that, we will conclude our mid-season review. We're very thankful for the work of our researchers this semester and for all of our wonderful guests on the program. Again, if you want to learn more about any of the topics discussed today, feel free to check out our other podcasts from this season or even our work from previous semesters. While you're here, we would really appreciate a rate or comment. We take all of your feedback into account as we try to craft content that is interesting and relevant to all of you in our audience. If you want to engage with us uh, in our analysis from a different angle, uh, you can check out our new blog on Medium where uh, researchers release new posts every week, or you can head over to our side channel, Global Inquirer After Hours, where I host a second stream of more informal discussion-based podcast content on the issues that we discussed here on the main channel. And finally, to keep up with all the latest Global Inquirer news, check us out on Facebook and our website, globalinquirer.org. So thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing all of you next week right back here at the Global Inquirer. Take care.